welcome to the Bullcast Podcast. I'm Katie Pickler, and with me is Court Winsett. Hello, Katie. Cameron Spann. Hello, hello. And a special guest. Special guest. Oh, we love special Ms. guests. Miss G. And you're probably going, who's Miss G? We're going to tell you. Don't worry. Miss G. I feel like this is a wait for it. Wait it for is. It. Wait, wait for, for it. it. Wait the for OG. it. The OG. Cam, who's our guest? The one and only Aaron Gruel. And you're probably, you're probably like, I've heard that name before. Mm-hmm. Well, you've also probably seen the film Freedom Writers, mm-hmm. starring Hilary Swank, mm-hmm. where you've read the book. The Freedom Writers Diary. <gasps> yes. There she is. There's Miss G. Aaron, what is it like to be Hilary Swank? <laughs> well, my brother had a crush on Hilary Swank until she played me in the feature film. So uh, oh. that felt a little creepy for that my brother. Got, it ruined it for him. Oh, it ruined man. it for him. <laughs> we have so many questions to get into. Yeah. I want our listeners to get to know how amazing Miss G is. Oh, she's wonderful. She will make you cry. I mean, hopefully not in this episode. We're probably not going to bring too many We're tears. We're not going for tears We're going here, for are we? We are going for laughs. laughs. Let's enjoy. No but, tears. Um, we've had the pleasure of spending the past you know, day and a half or so with Aaron. And I will tell you, I've seen her talk twice now yesterday. And I cried both times. I was like, I'm not going to cry the second time. I've got this. I'm like squeezing my hand, like, don't cry, don't cry. And the tears just fell. And it's happy tears. She's just the most passionate person I've ever met. And so listeners, y'all are honored to get to hear this amazing woman. Yes, listeners, you're honored to, to listen to this. You <laughs> I are... think that's why it was important last night for us to just laugh unabashedly. My, <laughs> yeah, I yes. got to my hotel and my face hurt from laughing for hours. So I'm just really excited to have some joy and whimsy. Yes. Speaking of last night, we will not mention James, James Spader. Spader on the oh, show today. Oh, this is a trigger. Triggers oh. and traumas. James Spader oh. is off limits. You've done it twice now. You've done it twice now. Should we kick off the show with our list? For those people who are still going... Who is Aaron Gruel and what is this Freedom Writers you're speaking of? Aaron Gruel is an educator and we know her because she has been a longtime friend of our boss, David Pickler. And so because everything that she does is sort of focused on the idea of educating, and we'll get into more detail about educating what exactly, but... Everything is about the education. So we decided Freedom Riders, obviously, is a, is a movie about education. Um, and we, we decided we would do our list today based on other movies that are like Freedom Riders based upon education. And that is where you are getting your list today. And Cameron's <laughs> going to kick it off. All right. First on the list, I swear, I swear this is not pandering. It, it truly is one of my favorite educational films. Freedom Riders. Your story. It's kind of a pinch me moment. Isn't that crazy? I don't even know what it would be like to have a movie made about my life. It's surreal. But again, it stars uh, Academy Award winner Hilary Swank, who portrays Aaron. Room 203, right? Mm -hmm. In the school that you started in. Uh, You could tell the story so much better, but it's about these uh, kids who had been uh, considered non-teachable, right? Uh, People had given up on them. And you said, no, I believe in them. One of my favorite scenes is the line game where you put mm-hmm. tape down the middle of the classroom and you ask these hard-hitting questions. I don't want to give it away. I think we'll talk about that yeah. a little bit later. But it really created this bond between you and the students, and it's a very inspirational story. When you showed the clip the other day, I, I love cried. showing it to the Chamber of Commerce. Man, tears. Because I tears. felt like that was a way to get these business leaders to really emotionally connect and emote. And they did. There, there was tears in the audience of of about 200 business leaders from the community. Yeah. So that was really special. And who played your ex-husband in the movie? The ever so hot Patrick Dempsey, Dr. McDreamy. Oh. Wow. <laughs> and a fun fact, uh, he is dyslexic and he had dropped out of high school. So I love that we have an educational film and he has felt compelled to get back to education ever since being in our movie. Wow. Phenomenal. Interesting. I mean, there's so many things I want to talk about. I know, movie, I know. We'll dive like... into it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I realize it's not part of the list, but can't let Patrick Dempsey go by without mentioning Can't Buy Me Love. Oh, uh, hello. Yeah. <laughs> can I tell you, we, we recently interviewed him. And of course you did. He, <laughs> and I, I swooned the entire time. But he was this really nerdy teenager with acne and really bad hair. He had not discovered hair products. Mm. And so you can kind of see remnants of that in Can't Buy Me Love. And he married a woman who is a cosmetologist. And so now he has all these great hair products. And so he's kind of grown (laughs) into his character. But I loved him describing him being this, like, nerdy, gangly teenager. Yeah. Growing up in Maine and how his dyslexia made him so anxious. So he became a juggler. And so in some of his roles and some of his feature films, he still juggles to this day. And it was a diversion as a kid that, you know, if I make everyone laugh and I make the teacher annoyed, she will never call on me 
to read because if I read, everyone's going to laugh at me mm. and not with me. <laughs> so I just thought that was a really compelling factor to get kids who, who do have learning disabilities to realize that you can kind of chase after your adversity. So the fact that he chose a profession where he constantly has to read and memorize words, I think is, is really telling. But that little lawnmower scene in Can't Find Me Love. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. we've only gotten to one on the list. Yeah, so it's going to be a long day. Keep going. Keep I know. Going. It's hard to like keep going with this because it's just this whole conversation and, and knowing Aaron's story is it all boils down to the educators and the difference that they've made in some of these people that you may not know. Like many people probably do not know that about Patrick Dempsey. And that I know we're going to dive into this, but with the Freedom Riders movie, you were very selective of who was in that movie their backgrounds and so I think people just have this image of somebody and, and they've quote unquote made it and they don't think about what happened before that and so many it's the educators behind it and I, I remember years ago I was at a conference and somebody was talking about this child that was in their classroom and that they were just very disruptive they c- couldn't sit still and then finally they were like you can stand up for the class it's okay and it ended up being that that person was the head choreographer that worked with Andrew Lloyd Webber on all of his major shows. And so if someone had told that person, no, you've got to sit, would that person have turned into the choreographer they were? Would they have been hindered so much with that? And so I think there's been impactful moments with teachers. But, you know, we talked about the Freedom Riders. Mr. Holland's Opus is another one that is really Mm. touching to me. That is just... That movie gets me every time. Beautiful, beautiful story. If you haven't seen it, you need to check that one out. Well, that reminds me of the Orpheum Theater that your father took us to (laughs) on my first evening here. And to be married on a stage (laughs) like the Orpheum Theater is just so incredible. So when you think of Mr. Hollum's opus and that kind of homage to music, it really is an homage to you as well to have something that's such a landmark in your community and to resuscitate it and with all of its character, and we we got to see the chair where little Molly <laughs> often sits and, and all that great folklore and history. So I, I love that too because I, I love music. Oh, yeah. I mean, music is a great teacher for so many people, and it's just teaching them that. Court, you got one on the list? Oh, yeah. I've got – there. I was trying to decide which one I was going to go with first, but I'm going to go with, for me, the obvious one, uh, Dangerous Minds. Oh, yeah. Um, which, of course, was uh, Michelle Pfeiffer played a teacher of a classroom of, I guess, at-risk kids, troubled kids, uh, difficulties learning, so so on and so forth, and she had to connect with them. I mean, you know, just on the face of it, when the Freedom Riders came out, I initially thought, oh, well, is that just Dangerous Minds done, uh, updated, whatever? It wasn't until later on that I realized that Freedom Riders was actually based on a true story and Dangerous Minds I don't think was. It wasn't, it wasn't. She was a former Marine in, in real life, and... The film, I I didn't think it was academic enough. And that was our fear. Like, we don't want to be Dangerous Minds Part 2. So it was really important for my students to stand up and say, you know, there's a scene, I think, where Michelle Pfeiffer is throwing out, like, candy bars. And they just thought that was kind of degrading. Mm -hmm. And being a Caucasian woman, we we wanted to make sure that it wasn't, like, the savior complex. Yeah, Yeah. white savior. a story where it was a white savior. So that was Mm -hmm. the duality of the teacher and the students was much more prevalent in our film as a result of Dangerous Minds. See, that's fantastic. But yeah. I will say, Dangerous Minds, one of the best songs ever. <laughs> well, yeah. Gangster's Coolio. Paradise. Gangster's Coolio. Paradise. Yes. yes. Thank you very much. <laughs> I, I did steal your first choice. You did. You because did. my first choice <laughs> is Dead Poet Society. Uh, and I often quote, oh, captain, my captain, yes. and I want to stand on a desk or a chair. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We've Absolutely. talked about this film a few times on this podcast. Oh, one of my favorite Robin Williams films. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But man, is it depressing. Oh gosh, it makes uh, me so angry. It hurts. It makes me so angry. One of the things that sets me off, other than Blaine. uh, (laughs) From from Pretty and Peak folks. Yes. yes. One of the things that sets me off in, in, in a movie is if I feel like adults are being unjust to children, yeah. mm-hmm. whether it's an adult administrator at a school or a parent, when there's injustice involved, and I feel like the kid is, and it doesn't even necessarily have to involve, oh, they're beating the child. It can just be like, this person is really being unfair to this child just based on the fact that they're an adult and the other the other person. That really ticks me off, and boy, does that happen in this movie. Something interesting that my colleagues and I were talking about the other day is suicide is on the rise, mm-hmm. tragically, because yeah. of the pandemic, and just depression and anxiety and and suicide ideation at an all-time high. And it's often the folks that you least expect. And the fact that 
Robin Williams eventually did take his life. I think that gutted most people. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Because he was so light and, and a comedian. He and brought happiness to everyone. And I don't think people saw that coming, that, that here's this very joyful person, mm-hmm. and he had this very dark past. The loss of him was, I think, uh, a really dark time for so many people. Oh, yeah. That's one of the few celebrity deaths that <clears throat> actually hit me hard. Mm. Yeah. Well, and it's like, it's kind of going back to Patrick Dempsey, and you were talking about him being kind of the class clown, and, and I know that from hearing you the past couple of days, a lot of times it's those that are bringing a lot of attention to themselves in one way of like being a class clown or trying to make people laugh, but it's trying to misdirect you on not really focusing on what's really going on. Like a diversion. Yeah. I think we're going to do one more round, right? Okay. Yeah, okay, we'll do one more round. Yeah, okay, absolutely. my pick is The Blind Side, which took place in Memphis. Mm-hmm. Um, what, 15, 20 years ago? Michael Orr, or who went to Briarcrest right down the street. I know some friends who went to school with him. <laughs> um, he was uh, this troubled child, and he was in and out of homes and schools. And uh, Leanne Tui, who is a local here, took him under her wing, took him in, got him. Took in. him under her roof. I yes. Mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah, straight up. The, the whole family did. They embraced him and uh, got him in the football program at Briarcrest and he excelled and he ended up in the NFL. And it's a very heartwarming story. I do hate that the movie was filmed in Atlanta, but those dadgum tax incentives. Mm-hmm. Um, Mona Lisa smiles. Uh, not a lot of people, I don't think, have seen this. It's Julia Roberts, Kirsten Dunst, lots of other really Maggie... Uh, Gyllenhaal. Maggie Gyllenhaal. Yeah. Like it's a great cast, but what this one was set, it was back in, you know, the fifties or so when pretty much women were, they went to college. They went to school to get their MRS. If they went, yeah, yep. they went to become a wife, but it was more of, they would read literature and stuff like that. And they didn't really learn a skill. And Julia Roberts character came in and she was a little bit more like she wore pants and she was a little risque with, you know, kind of her friends that she was around with. But she challenged these girls to be more, to be lawyers, to be doctors. And it the institution was not happy with her talking about maybe losing her job, all of that. But she did really reach some of those girls. And it was there was some pushback with it because they're like, no, we don't need to learn this and we need to learn how to sew and cook. That's it. But that was very impactful because that was someone coming in during a time when they really needed a, a voice. And so I think Julia Roberts really reached out to Kirsten Dunst's character in that movie. And then she went off to be in a professional position instead of just a wife, which there's nothing wrong with being just a wife. (laughs) Throwing that out. (laughs) Okay. So my next one is To Start With Love. Uh, This is a classic Classic. movie. Classic (laughs) movie. Uh, Sidney Poitier. I'm sorry. I can't. I I have trouble with his his last name, but you just have to say it fancy. Poitier. (laughs) Poitier. Poitier. Uh, He actually, I think, won an Oscar for this. I think his Oscar was for this, you know, because Sidney, first black man ever to win an Oscar. I think it was for this movie. So he plays, it's an interesting sort of flip-flop. You know, we talked about white savior and not wanting to sort of push that idea. This was a black teacher going into a classroom of toughs, of of white kids, though. This was a bunch of tough white kids who are looking at this black man who's trying to teach them and pushing back on that idea. And it's all about him overcoming that that barrier between them and ultimately, you know, how he manages to to actually teach the class. It's it's I'm not getting into the details, obviously. I don't want to ruin it for anybody who hasn't seen it. Spoiler but holes. Hey. <laughs> but it is an amazing movie. He gives a, an amazing performance. So it's it's wonderful. If you haven't watched it, you should. It is older, I will tell you. It was <laughs> it came out in uh, 1967. So it's an older film, but it is absolutely worth the watch if you haven't seen it. Can I be a contrarian and choose a film that I don't like? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I like this. Let's do it. The documentary Waiting for Superman. I have not seen and it. And I'm, I'm friends with the filmmaker, Davis Guggenheim, but it was a love letter to charter schools, but in doing so, it made the public school system like this kind of emotional pinata. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm a public school girl. That's Absolutely. how I met your father yeah. was through <laughs> the National School Board Association. And I felt that Waiting for Superman really was was putting public schools in a position that was in a negative light. And I believe that Public education is a civil right. So I took great offense to that film, and a lot of public school teachers as well were really offended that suddenly the silver bullet was going to be a charter school or the silver bullet was going to be something other than our public schools. And so that that film was hard for me. I've watched it, 
and I've debated it, but I, I really always feel that this being an ally and an advocate for public schools is, is really important. I must ask, does your friend who directed it know your stance on the movie? I was very honest. Good. And I was very honest because I he, he did not have an educational background. And I, I thought it was really important for him to know that, you know, I, I respect you as a filmmaker. And he's gone on to make incredible documentaries. He did the films with Al Gore, mm. Convenient Truth. So I thought he was a brilliant filmmaker. But he had gone to Sidwell in, in Washington, D.C., where Chelsea Clinton and a lot of famous kids go. And and I think that having gone to non-public schools himself, that he, he did have a bias. And I have a bias. I, I believe that when public schools work, like the public school that we were at last night, uh-huh. um, I think it's really important to, to celebrate that. I, I mean, I'm an interesting dichotomy here. I, I'm a private school kid. I went to private school here in Memphis for a long time. The mantra of Memphians was if you live inside the city limits of Memphis, you send your kids, if you can, you send them to private school. Lots of things that have been tried to, to fix that situation. There's still people that are down on our public schools here in this city, but you cannot, you cannot work for David Pickler and not support a thriving public school mm-hmm. system and not be against things like vouchers and uh, charter schools and stuff like that because David is obviously a huge champion of, of public schools and you know you sort of catch that fever. My kids went to public schools. They went to public schools right, right here and all graduated from public schools and did phenomenally well in going on for their further education. Um, you know, I had, I had nothing but great things to say about the public education they got. So, so I'm in the same boat. Uh, my parents sent me to private school. I was middle of nowhere, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. But I feel like whether you went to private school or not, you kind of have to support public education because what is it? 54 million American children are in public schools. Mm-hmm. You need to make sure that pu- needs public education is the best it can be. Yeah. Because as our future leaders, that's a majority of Americans. Yeah. What is the Frankfurter quote? The public school is at once the symbol of our democracy and the most pervasive means for promoting our common destiny. Mm. There's a lot of fancy words in there. That's impressive. Mm. Indeed. indeed. Well, you private school boys, I'm public through and through. And this kind of is teeing into where we're going to let Aaron really take this over. But, and it's probably because of my dad, but also my mom and my grandmother. My mom was a a high school special ed teacher. My granny was a teacher of all different things. She actually taught sign language in a very low income school in Arkansas. She retired and still went to school every single day and would go into the classrooms and talk to teachers. Is there someone you're having trouble with? Let me work one-on-one with them. And so there's tons of stories that I grew up with that, but I've always been a big proponent that an educator can change somebody's life, good or bad. And whether it's a stigma that sticks with you for the rest of your life, because you had a teacher tell you, you're not good at math, and that's with you for the rest of your life, or one that actually cared about you and changed your direction. And so Aaron is one of those who has made a difference in so many people's lives. So Aaron, will you tell our listeners who you are? So I am an educator, and I like to say I'm an accidental activist. And our story in Room 203 in in Long Beach, California, made its way out of our classroom, first into a book and then into a feature film. And we, the collective we, still being my my Freedom Writer original students, feel compelled to pay it forward and, and help teachers and students all over the world find their voice in, in the walls of their classroom and have agency when they feel that they are, are not in safe spaces. So it's really about giving students opportunities. I was an English teacher specifically, so my students were able to find their voice with words and writing. But it's really encouraging any educator to find the, the subject matter in which they teach and, and really be celebrated. And so I love our list is Holland's opus is music. Um, we should have mentioned Stand and Deliver, mm-hmm. which was through mathematics mm-hmm. and calculus. Uh, My but weakness. I think, <laughs> I think, you know, for most teachers, you, you want your kids to fall in love with the subject in which you love. And for me, I came against a wall where I had teenagers who had never read Never read a book from cover to cover, never gone to a library, never went to bookstores, didn't like writing, didn't like school, didn't like each other. So I had a lot of work to do is how do I make books come to life? Not not realizing that eventually they would become authors, but I had to start at ground zero. And you know, how do I engage kids who are unmotivated? And how do I enlighten kids who don't see education as an equalizer? And then most importantly, how do I send them out into the world 
feeling empowered. Before you ever could come up with a, an innovative way to teach these kids, you had to bust through that barrier. They weren't interested in listening to you, I would assume, at yeah. first. So you got a lot of work you had to do just to even get them to try what you were pitching. You know, it's about trust and and respect. Going back to my obsession with dead poets and that, oh, captain, my captain, mm. giving kids the opportunity to think outside the box. You know, we were in an era of teaching to a test and very data-driven, and my kids taught me, teach to me. Don't teach to a test. There is no one-size-fits-all. You know, we've got to have different modalities. So for a kid to be able to stand and then become a choreographer, you know, kids learn differently. So I had to have different modalities. And I and that's what I love about the world of podcasting is a lot of kids are auditory learners. So the fact that they could hear something is so important because um, my students walked in and they knew every lyric to every song <laughs> and every moment of their favorite movie. So their memories were amazing. I just had to say, those are storytellers. And to be someone who is a great poet like Tupac and a rose in concrete, let's look at other poets like Gertrude Stein, who says a rose is a rose is a rose. Mm -hmm. So it was important for me to say, you, you already have it down, whether it's a hip hop artist or a rap aficionado, there is power with words. Or even with Coolio, Gangster's Paradise. <laughs> a classic. Aaron, I, I love how real you are. I feel like you'll shoot me straight. And I'm, I'm curious about this. Was there ever a time when, once you were a teacher where you didn't want to be an educator anymore, whether that's out of like fear or despondency? And if so, what got you back on track? What, was, what motivated you to be like, you know what, I have to do this? You and I talked about this yesterday. I have an imposter complex to this day. You know, 30 seconds before standing up in front of the Chamber of Commerce, I had a panic attack. And I often have those, those feelings of self-doubt when I walk into a classroom to this day, even though it's my profession, because it matters so much. You know, I had a father who was in professional baseball, and I want to do a Babe Ruth and point to the rafters every moment of every class because I want it to matter. And you strike out, and it is demoralizing. And, and then you have to do it all over once the bell rings. And so I think there's something about education that has those built-in startovers. Every day is a new day, every quarter, every semester, every year, every hour on the hour. And I think you just have to have a lot of internal dialogues with yourself that you, know, you gotta pull yourself up. And you know, kids say the darndest thing, and I, and I love that because they don't have a filter. And you said that I keep it real, well, my kids keep it real. And so they have a really good BS detector. And so I think if you try to be something that you're not, they will crucify you. So you you end up having to be very flexible and be able to turn on a dime. This is kind of a current thing that I, and I don't know if it's across the country or if it's just really seems to be happening around here, but I'm hearing of a lot of people I know who are teachers who are in the profession that are leaving because they feel like the things have shifted, that parents are getting much more involved in it more of a negative way. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because right now we, we have a, sh a shortage. I think the pandemic was really hard. I think politics have, have made it hard. And I think that teachers feel very demoralized. They are, they are overworked and underpaid. And How I Met Your Father, I often refer to his colleagues as my favorite boy band. All of these former presidents of, of their state and the National School Board Association, now at these school board meetings, People come in groves, and school board meetings can last for hours, and there's these debates with parents trying to tear down a system, trying to fire a school board member or a superintendent, and it's it's hard and it's heavy. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that was the flavor in which we created this checks and balances within our system. I think people don't remember for someone to be your doctor, your attorney, all of those they had to be educated. You have to think about how important these teachers are to turning your children into what you want the future society to be. But I've always said teachers are never paid what they are actually worth. And it's very sad. And it just, it, I've seen the shift of where it turns into, and I don't have kids yet, but where it's no longer that it's you know, the kid's fault, that the kid maybe did something, it's always the teacher's fault is what a shift around in our community. It seems like the parents are always yelling at the teacher. What did you do? And I don't know if it, it is the disconnect with the pandemic and how you had so many of those kids that were at home and being educated by a Zoom call or a laptop and 
what do you think the impact we're going to see from from the pandemic of all those kids that were home? It is the last three years. Whether you were fully virtual, whether you were hybrid, there was such loss. There was such anxiety about what is happening in our world. And so I think a lot of teachers are, are feeling this obsession to catch up. And especially for those younger grades in elementary school, that, that's a really difficult thing when the, when the camera's turned off and a kid was playing Fortnite. There was no way to make sure that they were leaning in and listening. And, and so I think it's, we're seeing that now in our classes, that the kids are further and further behind and teachers are, are more desperate. And I'm so proud of this profession. I think it's noble and I think it is just and it's right. But I'm, I'm saddened that teachers feel that they are the, the emotional pinata for parents and people that have a platform or, or a pundit and, and, and blame a lot on the educators. From an outsider's perspective, my perception of the way school works is this. You, when you, especially when you're a new, young, fresh out of college teacher, if you go into the school system as a teacher, you're not exactly given your choice of where you're going to land or what class you're going to land with. My impression is you're assigned. Did you did you actually choose to go to work with this particular class of of at-risk kids or or was it just something that you were assigned and once you got there you decided you'd make the best of it? Being that you were a lawyer, that was originally the trajectory that I wanted to follow. Mm. I thought I was going to walk into a courtroom, sit in front of a judge and jury and try to make justice prevail. And in my community, we had the horrific Rodney King verdict that led to an uprising, a riot. And I just remember being spellbound. Our entire community shut down for days. You know, we just watched the pillaging, the rioting, the burning, and feeling powerless and helpless. And I just remember there was a scene that we were seeing on television because it was 24 hour coverage. And there were kids looting and burning. And I just thought, I don't think I want to walk into a courtroom defending or persecuting those kids. By that point, it's too late. I think I could be a civil rights advocate, being their teacher and being in front of them and getting ahead of that problem. And that proclamation didn't go over well with my father because my father was like, why would you want to leave this particular career choice for one that was ultimately going to lead me into a community that was considered uh, urban and and had kids kids that were participating in those those riots? So when I, when I signed up, I chose that school. I, I didn't know the grade in which I would teach. Ultimately, it was freshman because, let's face it, nobody wants freshmen. <laughs> and I also had the kids who had been expelled, who had been arrested, who had ankle monitors, who score below the 20th percentile of every standardized test. So we, we give them colloquial names like remedial. And kids walk in and they think, oh, I'm in the dumb class because they can look around and, and see the other kids that are in that class. So sadly, my kids knew day one, she might be a babysitter. And this is the class where no one's supposed to make it. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you're brave enough to teach high schoolers, because when I walk by a group of high schoolers, I feel so judged and nerdy and uh, insecure. And you should be all of those things. Well, great. Because they do <laughs> judge you. And that's <laughs> the beauty and the fear of being in high school, because they will say anything and they will do anything. And so you have to have this poker face. And when I realized that I could be real and I could let them know I was insecure if I, if I had a poignant moment and I could cry, it, it was kind of this liberating moment not to have the wall and have the guard and, and to fake, fake the front. All right, let's jump to the film. I don't want to linger on it too long, but I know our listeners are fascinated, <laughs> just as I am. So I know that you and I think your students got a say in um, the actors and a lot about the movie. You got to hand select Hilary Swank, which was your number one choice, right? She was my number one choice, which is weird and wonderful. I originally did not think there needed to be a teacher in this film. And so when I met with the screenwriter who ultimately would become the director as well, he had just come off the success of Aaron Brockovich. So I was kind of known behind the scenes as Aaron number two. <laughs> and in that film, Julia Roberts plays Aaron Brockovich, the real, the real woman. And he asked me, what are your two favorite films? And I, we played that last night at dinner. Mm. And so for me, at that time, I said Schindler's List and Shawshank Redemption. And we talked about these moments in films that really speak to us. And for me, it was two quintessential scenes. The little girl in the red dress in Schindler's List in, in the middle of the Warsaw Ghetto and 
the scene where the gentleman in Shawshank wants to rob so that he can go back to prison. That's where he felt safe. And I said, you know, I love films where, you, where there's a quintessential scene and when the movie's over, you have to get a cup of coffee and you have to keep talking about it. You know, I, I want there to be a scene where people want to keep talking. So in saying that out loud to you, Cameron, the fact that The Lion Game was a scene for you is surreal because I just hope that we could we could have a moment where someone could be voyeuristic and and when the film was over, whether it was The Lion Game or Toast for Change, that people would want to continue that conversation. And so we were, we were in this moment and he said, well, who do you want to play you? And it kind of knocked me out of that moment with Schindler's List and Shawshank Redemption of, you know, why does there need to even be a teacher? This, this story is really about my students. And he said, well, there has to be a teacher. There has to be a teacher that, that brings it together. And I, I blurted out Hilary Swank. I hadn't even thought about it prior to him asking because I was just convinced that this breakfast meeting was, was not going to lead to anywhere. And I had seen Boys Don't Cry. And I love that Hilary Swank had taken a risk and, and had played someone who was transgender, Brandon Tina, and sadly ultimately lost her life for playing that role. And I just thought it was so bold and, and, and so daring. And it was at a time that we weren't having those kinds of conversations. And those kinds of movies and those kind of roles were relegated to independent films, you know, the, the Spirit Awards. And I just love the fact that she would take a risk make this movie on scale, win an Academy Award, and not even have enough money to have health insurance. I just thought, I love her spirit and her grit. And the studio saw otherwise. You know, at a time, this was not easy to make a film with a female protagonist. You have to be a very certain kind of, of, of movie star, like a Hollywood starlet, to have that green light. So I ended up meeting and or having a lot of other actresses attached to this role. And it was, for a moment, Reese Witherspoon. And for a moment, it was Cameron Diaz. And for a moment, it was Kate Hudson. There's and a theme here. There's a theme. They were all blonde. <laughs> they were all emaciated. And and they were not me. And I kept hunkering back to Hillary because I thought she's got the grit that I think we need for this film. She, she has the gumption of someone who was homeless and lived in a car. And I think that that backstory, that origin story will ring true with my students and that sentimentality that we want to bring into this film. I thought she did a great job at embodying you. And mm -hmm. so I'm curious, in pre-production, did y'all have little like one-on-one -on -one sessions where she like studied your mannerisms and how you talk and how you teach? It's weird because she, I, I always put my hair behind my ears. So there's little nuances that she does. She used the same pin I used. She wore the pearls that I wore. They raided my closet to get the outfits the same. Um, there was just a lot of, of quirks that I have that she was able to, to create. And so my students, they thought it was really wonderful and weird as well that she was able to encapsulate a lot of, a lot of my idiosyncrasies. Amazing. Well, and then when we talked about your casting, but what about your kids casting? Because that was very thoughtful of how you did that. You know, we wanted real kids, real kids that were not part of the Screen Actors Guild and didn't have momagers and weren't on a Disney set or a Nickelodeon set. So that was really important to hire real kids, real Angelinos who look like and talk like my students and subsequently had the same stories. So one of the students who got the lead had been living in a car and... Another student had just come from a rehab. Another kid was homeless. So there was a you know a lot of similarities. Sadly saying that, we ended up losing two young men who were in the film to murder. You know, we we were casting kids from a backdrop of Los Angeles that had a very high murder rate. And two of the kids that were in our film, sadly, after the film had wrapped, had lost their lives. Oh and that's a real tragedy that they never got to to walk a red carpet go to the film and and see it in in all its glory. Listening to the story and walking in there and seeing these kids and you, you know, doing the line game, you made a connection with them and kind of let them know, like, I'm not going anywhere. I'm here. I want to get to know you guys. But then you started realizing you wanted 
them to have books. You wanted them to have that, obviously, funds. How how did that go down about, you know, you wanted to do things for your kids, but obviously you're on a teacher's salary. Ah, yes. Did we mention that we're a financial podcast? So, <laughs> hmm, so the, the, the let's fin- talk about the money. So the financial <laughs> element of being a teacher is, is really sad. As a someone who went to public schools, and I played sports, I joined clubs, I was a cheerleader, I was an athlete, you know, I, I had the opportunity to go on field trips. You know, I had parents who were able to subsidize all of the things that I wanted. So I had all the right books, all the right uniforms. Um, we went on field trips. I taught in a public school where that was not the norm. Kids did not grow up in nuclear homes. They didn't get brand new books even in class. They were terrified to let them leave the school to take field trips. And when something happened in my class and I realized I want them to have a brand new copy of the Diary of Van Frank. I want them to go see Schindler's List in a movie theater. I want them to go to a museum. I want them to meet a Holocaust survivor uh, live and in person. All of that had economic cost attached. And so when I asked for those things, I was denied flatly. The dean of the English department, flatly from my principal, and I'm a little bit of a maverick. So I started figuring out ways, well, how can we do it at night? Or how can we do it on a weekend? And if we are subversive, then I'm going to need drivers. I'm going to need friends. I'm going to need funds. So originally, it was me getting extra jobs. I ended up having, at at the pinnacle, three extra jobs to pay for said buses and books. I worked as a concierge at a hotel, a five-star hotel, on the weekends and holidays. I worked at night, uh, teaching night school. And I worked at a department store uh, selling bras in the lingerie department at Nordstrom's. And all of those extra funds were to buy brand new books, to take my students on a bus and go to a museum. And I finally realized I just need to ask for help. I need to be humble enough to stand in front of a school board. And I have to be humble enough to stand in front of my superintendent and ask for help. And when I ask for help, you know, there's that fear of rejection, which is very common and very real. But when they said yes, it changed everything. You know, when I went to a chamber of commerce or a rotary club and asked for help and they said yes, that was a game changer because I, I couldn't raise enough money because the stakes got higher. You know, my students wanted to to take their book to the Secretary of Education in Washington, D.C. They wanted to go to Anne Frank's attic in Amsterdam. They wanted to go and and visit Auschwitz in Poland. And when the stakes kept getting higher, I needed more help. And that's where our community came in, is having people say yes and, and people offer to help. And it was humbling and it was beautiful. We would have newspaper articles written about us and, and, and the kindness of strangers would send us a $5 check. And and to this day, those kinds of checks are actually my favorite. We got a $5 check from an inmate at Attica Prison. Wow. And I treasured that $5 check from that inmate at Attica to this day more than I did some of the grants that we had been afforded because I kept thinking about this inmate and what did he have to do to send us not only that check but this beautiful handwritten letter about if I had had a teacher like you, I might not be in a maximum security prison. Oh, wow. Probably makes you want to frame that check, doesn't it? Absolutely. (laughs) Because this guy's doing the absolute best he can, giving the most he can to keep this train rolling. And I remember every every Christmas we we go to a juvenile hall and we ask our community to to donate books. And I put on my fanciest red dress and my my little Prius becomes our Santa sleigh. And when we get up to the crack of dawn, we bring books and we bring cupcakes, and I hope we bring hope. And a a few years ago, before the pandemic, there was this young man, and we had passed out the cupcakes, and we'd passed out the books, and we'd played the line game with them, and we did the toast for change, and then sadly, it was time for them to go back to their cell. And so I stood at the the precipice where they'd have to leave, and the warden was there, and I said, you know, on your way out, let's do a fist bump or a high five or go in for the hug. So these boys are walking away, and they've got sprinkles um, in the corners of their mouth from devouring the cupcakes, and they've got their brand new book, and they're going to go to their cell. This this boy, he lingered, and he was the last one. And it was awkward. And I said, okay, so fist bump, high five, hug. And he went in for the hug. 
and it was awkward. And it lasted for the better part of forever. And in my mind, I had this internal dialogue. Do I pull away first or does he? And when he finally pulled away and he had tears in his eyes, he said, I'm sorry, ma'am. I'm sorry I didn't eat the cupcake, but it was too damn perfect to touch. Mm. And he said, I've never had a present in my entire life, but this book is the first present I've ever been given. And I said, write to me. There was this moment where I just felt very desperate that I didn't want him to go to that cell on, on Christmas and, and be isolated. So I said, you know, in the back of our book is our, is our address and write to me. And about three days later, I got this handwritten letter. And they don't let kids in their cells have any kind of writing utensil because that could be used to self-harm and, and to, puncture, to puncture veins. So he must have asked for permission. And he, the first line of his letter, I will never forget, he said, I woke up today which was Christmas Eve, I woke up this morning and I wanted to die. And then the second line was, so I looked around my cell to figure out a way to die. And then the warden said, you have a guest and a guardian angel walked into my life. And this letter continued about being a foster kid and, and never having a visitor, never having gifts and that this book was something that he treasured and devoured and read. And at the end of his letter, he said, but I'm going to get out of here, and I'm never coming back. And I'm sad that today that our book, The Friedemeyer's Diary, is often banned, and it is coveted for kids in places that are dark. And so once again, that's something I wanted to frame, that this kid in this really dark place had a cupcake and a book and a caring adult who said, you can get out of here. You, you can write your own story. And he did so in the form of a letter on Christmas. Um, but I think that's what education can do is say it gets better. Okay, you made me cry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I want you to talk about, because if we haven't said it yet, and I want everyone to hear, he had hope that he could get out of his current situation because of you being there. Your kids, you know, what did the teachers tell you when you started about your kids? Oh, there were three of the most horrific words, dumb, stupid, and nothing. I'm sure all of those kids believed it. They had ingrained it in their brain, and you showed them that's not true. That's not who you are. You're not labeled by that. And I think that's part of the magic of our Freedom Our Stories is new labels. Brilliant and beautiful. And I think in that moment with that young boy, I, I knew that hug that was, oh, I remember in the letter, he apologized for the hug. And he said, I, I know it must have felt like it went on forever, but I had never had a hug. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I just didn't want it to end. And you just smelled so clean. Wow. I think about that, the innocence. And here's this teenage boy who went through his entire life never having any kind of validation or touch. And I remember those Romanian orphans years ago, they would show that they would self-stimulate in their, in their cribs because they had never been touched by a parent and they would kind of rock themselves. And I think about this, this beautiful boy who had never been hugged, never been touched, never been validated. You say it all the time and I don't think people realize you do not know what somebody's going through. You just, you see what you want to see and it's too many people don't dig deeper to find out what they need. And, and that's, I think the pandemic made it where people weren't checking on each other. People weren't talking and it made it where everybody was so isolated that I think the first thing a lot of people said was that first hug right after the pandemic was so rewarding because you finally had that touch again. And smiles. Even, yeah. I mean, you know, when you smile under a mask, you don't, you don't see all the wrinkles uh -huh. and the um, smile lines. And I think that's also what we were missing was yeah. you, could, you could get it from the twinkle in an, of an eye, but to have that broad, beautiful smile or a guffaw, you know, just a really deep laugh. And I think we, we miss that in those, those few years. Sorry to interrupt. Y'all got a thing going here, but, um, you know, just from my perspective, the pandemic was awesome. I spent like <laughs> two years with a mask over my face. So nobody was asking me why I was always frowning and I didn't have to hug a single person. Do you I didn't have, even have to shake hands with somebody. Resting bitch face. Oh God. Yes. Oh, no, you're... I'm a little grumpus. Absolutely. So, uh, oh, it's, it's... I heard rumors of grumpy cat. Is that <laughs> yeah. just a rumor? No, it's not. No, it's not. I did love that the pandemic forced you to 
cancel all plans. As, and as have an excuses. Introvert. Have excuses not it's, to go places. It's the best. I mean, listen, we, this this podcast was born out of the pandemic. We yeah. we got together and started recording these when we weren't having client meetings. People mm. weren't coming to see us. The office was quiet for a while. We were still coming into work every day. We're a financial institution. We were one of the the institutions that was allowed to stay open, and uh, and so we were open. But people weren't coming to see us. So we had we had some time, and that's that's well, when we started recording this. Anyway. And we wanted the reason for it is we wanted to be educators. I wanted to help bring awareness to financial topics and things like that. And so that's why we created this. But we've talked about the movie. There was a book before the movie. Can you tell me about, and now there's two books. Can you tell me about the books? So the, the Freedom Myers Diary was this homage to my classroom and my students wrote in their diaries anonymously. And then we selected their stories to collectively bind from their freshman year first through their senior year. This question has been killing me and I've, I've got to ask, okay, so your, your freshman class of your kids, of the, the Freedom Riders that started that freshman year, that wasn't your only class. I've had them forever. Okay. So the, the Freedom Riders, I was able to kind of through guerrilla tactics, keep them their freshman year, their sophomore year, their junior year, their senior year. Wow. Uh, they graduated. I created a, a community college cohort I then created a university cohort. And then just recently, we have a master's program cohort. So I have been wow. their educator at many levels. Um, Fantastic. And the, the master's cohort started during the pandemic. You know, a lot of my students have gone on to get even higher degrees. Some are working on EDDs and PhDs and, and, and MDs. But having them as my students at all of these different levels has been amazing. Mm. So they truly are your babies. They're my babies. From I see them every day. year, you saw them through high school and beyond. And beyond. Mm. I've been able to officiate a couple weddings oh. for their kids, <laughs> which is pretty exciting, which has aged me. And and have, you know, I'm like their auntie too, or their, you know, for a lot of them, they call me Mama G. A lot of my kids were either foster kids or abandoned so it went from Miss G to, to Mama G. The OG from the LBC? The OG from the LBC. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I sort of threw a wrench in there. You were, you were actually explaining the, the books. Yeah, books. Yeah, the books. And, <laughs> and, I... and that goes into the book. So our book has, has evolved as we have. We had a, The original diary came out in 1999, and then we released 10 new stories on the 10th anniversary. And it was wildly successful a second time around because people were like, you know, where are they now? And then right before the pandemic, we did 20 new stories for the 20th anniversary. And the, the new version that has all, all of the stories is actually my favorite because the stories in the 20th have hindsight and there's retrospective. And, it's, and it is of the now, but of the now that's even grittier. Like what does sobriety look like now? And, and what is facing your pain, making it your purpose now? So I love the stories in the new book because it really has some breadth and some depth to it. I have two final questions, but they're kind of rapid fire questions. Is there an educator in your life that made an impact on you? Is there a teacher that stands out like, wow, that person kind of changed me? Wendy Frankel was my third grade teacher. I loved her. And Wendy Frankel donates to my foundation, which is so surreal. You know, I, I was a girl that had all those multiple jobs and we started a little nonprofit in earnest to try to help with buses and books and it was very myopic. It was just for my kids, my 150 students. And then we opened it up to helping teachers. And we now have a scholarship program that we are trying to raise money in earnest for our, our, our little gathering in, in the end of June. And Wendy Frankel, my third grade teacher, still donates. And I, it's like that $5 check from Attica. She's since gone on to retire. And she will send me a $100 check every year and it makes me weep it is it is the most amazing thing because i i know for a teacher to donate yeah. it's not easy you know so a donation traditionally from a teacher might be twenty dollars or even last night at collerville high school i made some teachers stand up and and buy a twenty dollar book for students in the audience and i felt a little guilty about that and they raised their hands immediately they were so excited to pay it forward and oh this makes me want to cry one of the educators came up to me and she was the first one to raise her hand. And when she came up to me, she was so humble. She had the $20 that she had, she bought a kid a book, but she didn't buy a book for herself because she thought of the kid first. And she had in her hand the older version of our teacher's guide, and it was worn and it was weathered. And so I just had to buy her a book. I said, I, I can't believe that you bought a kid a book that you don't even know in the audience. 
so I want to buy you a book. So traditionally, when, when teachers donate, you know, maybe 20 bucks. So the fact that my third grade teacher sends me $100 every single year so that I can take that $100 and pay it forward to someone who's the first generation, first in their family to graduate, first in their family to go to college, means the world to me. And that's a perfect segue to my second question. Speaking of selling books, so I've seen over the week a few times after you present, there's a line of people buying your book and you're talking with them, you're signing it, but I also see a lot of tears in the line. Do you enjoy that that part of your your tour or your presentations when you can have these intimate conversations with it? Oh, it's people? amazing. Uh, yesterday, I want to I want to do a shout out to Alex. Alex, uh, I met him, his sister, and his mother last night at Collierville High School, and they were so nervous. And we always have a couple books that uh, that I carry around with me, and so they get a little mangled. And so he and his family had bought a communal book for the three of them. And I looked at my colleague, Rob, and I said, get the book, the book that I'd been carrying around that was mangled, because I was hoping that I would have a chance to see Alex again. And Alex and his family sat right in the front, right in the front in the auditorium. He cried the entire time. And like I was weepy, you know, Katie, you were talking about being weepy. I, I want to give credit to Alex because he was, he was feeling it. He was in his feels. And then when he came up to us last night, um, to be able to give him that book, our second book, Dear Freedom Writer, and this kid just lost it. And I ended up doing the ugly Kim Kardashian cry. I think I was <laughs> snorting. It was, and we, and it was like, we were the only two people in the world. And it didn't matter that there was people in line. It didn't matter that a superintendent was there. It was so organic and beautiful. And I just wanted everything to stop. And so I think that that expression of, of people being willing to stand in the line and, and being willing to have that moment. And I'm always nervous because I stand on stage and I'm so nervous that I'm sweating and then I'm, I'm giving them a hug and they're probably thinking, oh, she's she's hugging me and we're still in a pandemic and, and she's sweating. But it's... You know, it's a way for me to have that connection. And I love last night that there was so many hands that went up to simply pay it forward to kids. And what I wanted to do last night was what happened is if you pay it forward and you buy a book for a kid, then then go meet that kid. And I, I put the superintendent on blast and there was just an adorable kid. And I asked him to span. He kept kind of turning. He was sitting in front of you, <laughs> yeah. Katie. And he was kind of turning around and like, is she talking to me? And I was talking to him. And I, I wanted him to meet the superintendent. I wanted the superintendent to have that moment with this kid and to see the superintendent pull out a crisp $20 bill from his pocket and hand it to me so I could hand a book to that student was beautiful. But it wasn't about the book. It was the exchange that then happened with the superintendent and this teenager. It was it was exquisite. So that's why I love doing the the book exchange at, at the end. It's just a way to bring people together. Yeah, I got to witness the exchange you had with Alex and the tears. And I looked down the line and every woman in that line was crying because it is this shared experience seeing a child impacted and they're vulnerable and so many tears last night. So oh, many yeah. tears. I mean, I'm crying over here about that, but it's, I have been impressed and it's, I'm guilty of this. I think because we are all so technology driven, we're on our phones. We're constantly thinking when we're at something like a speaker, then it's like, what emails am I missing? What text am I missing? Like what is happening? But what I noticed at the two events yesterday, everybody was engaged. Everyone was in the moment. You brought all of them into your classroom. You told the story and we all were thinking of different things, thinking of who do we know? Who do we need to go check on? Who do we need to see how we can help? How can we get involved? Because it's we're not in the moment anymore. Yeah, and that's you talked about kids when they go out and they may all go out together, but they're all on their phones. And I think the misconception is that kids aren't going through anything tough. It's the adults. That's not true. Even you know Carterville. Carterville is a very blessed community. There's a lot of support with it, but there's still, I'm sure, kids in every single one of those classrooms that is going through something. And you can't just take someone who is dressed nice and all of that, that they're not struggling. I just want to make something clear because people often say how blessed we are and we are blessed out here. And we certainly have some wonderful schools out here, but we also have the second most poverty stricken population in the County outside of Memphis. So like it's Memphis has the most poverty. 
Collierville has the second most poverty. So we are both blessed, but we also are a real town. We grew up and have our own demographics outside of just being a suburb of Memphis. We are a real town. We've been around forever, and our population grew as our town grew, but we've always had people that are challenged. And so we've got to make sure that those people are not being left behind. I wanted to throw that out there. I want to piggyback on that. We have a a teacher training program that we've done for years and an incredible educator named Danielle Johnson. She is in Memphis City Schools. She teaches at Cordova High School. She has been to Long Beach. We trained her. And during the pandemic, we were looking for teachers who would, would nominate a kid to to participate in our next book project. And she found the most amazing teenager. Her name is Tanalia. And she shepherded her through this program. And she joined us last night. And I, I wanted her to have the experience of standing in the line with me. And as people bought Dear Freedom Writer for her to autograph it, because when we had our official book launch, she wasn't able to raise the funds to come. And it's, it's soul crushing when a teacher can't go to a conference. It's soul crushing when they don't have that celebratory moment. And so I'm going to go rogue. But we, we had students write about their story. And, and one, of our, one of our authors, who was a young teenage girl, wrote about mental health. And it was a celebration of It Gets Better in the response. And it didn't get better. Um, sadly, this young girl took her life. Mm. And it gutted me. And it gutted all 50 of these teenage authors who got to know her through our Zooms, those that got to meet her at the book launch. And so we're having a celebration of life. And we're going to have the ability to talk about suicide in in a very unvarnished way. And I asked Danielle very candidly last night, are are you able to join us? We're going to plant a tree in Lexi's honor, and we're going to release some butterflies. And sadly, Danielle said, "I, I don't have the funds. But I'll, I'll be there in spirit. And that's that can-do spirit that so many educators have is I'll, I'll be there in spirit. And so I just feel I have the sense of urgency to see if maybe some of your listeners, like that man in Attica, could send in $5 or so. And maybe we could start an opportunity for Danielle right here in Tennessee, right here in Memphis, to go and represent and, and to come and be with her Freedom Writer family to come back and be with her Memphis family. And I think it's, you know, I, when she left last night, I just, I gave her free books because she, you know, she didn't have that moment to be with those kids and those authors. But I just think it's so hard, you know, when you are an educator and you don't have the luxury of being recognized, of, of taking a trip. Because I know what that feels like when people say no. And and I know what it feels like to to have lost a student and to have gone to a funeral parlor. It's, it's really tough. So tell us about the foundation, how people can help you, how people can either donate or what they can do to help spread what you're doing. Well, our, our foundation is called the Freedom Writers Foundation, and we are a 501c3, and we will have these, these causes. I love when we were writing the book and some of our young authors needed a computer. We were able to raise enough money for every single kid that participated to get a brand new computer. And and then we had to find ways to get computers into the communities in which these kids lived. We had a young girl in Gaza and they they took her her computer at the border and they and we had to figure out a way how do how do we get her another computer? So we had bought her a computer, we sent it and the guards took it away. So we're always trying to figure out, you know, these these projects when when both my father and my mother died, I came up with scholarship programs through our foundation to pay it forward. So when people donate, usually it's for a cause. Um, we are celebrating mental health in the month of June. And all of these teenage authors and all of their teachers have been invited to come and to celebrate, to celebrate life because of the loss thereof and to look at adversity and how do we pull ourselves up and how do we continue to fight a good fight. And we're going to be celebrating these young authors by also giving them a scholarship. And that scholarship may be to attend the conference. That scholarship might be for books at their their schools, or it could be for those that are embarking to college to help them with their tuition or a class. And so we've just started this campaign for a scholarship to, to help these young kids and and help our teachers. And it's hard for teachers because teachers are really proud and they're really humble. 
And like myself, they do not like to ask for help. You know, I was scrappy and I worked because it was easier for me to work for the help rather than to ask for the help. And so that's one of the, the campaigns. We actually just launched it on Tuesday, yesterday, of, of, you know, how can we raise some funds to bring these folks together? Incredible. Absolutely incredible. This has been an amazing conversation. I feel like we could talk for hours. <laughs> we could. We could actually go on for hours, but... Uh, You've got a plane to catch. I got a plane to catch. Yeah. But, I, but in, in Freedom Rider World, we say dot, 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 see you later, because goodbye feels too formal. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I feel like Dad. I have my BFFs at this very table. <laughs> And I want to come back and, and laugh till my face hurts again, like we did last night. Uh, we wanna... can do that. Yeah. So, oh, listen. And so I don't want the door to slam. I want, I want you guys to kick, gently kick me out so I don't miss my flight. Indeed. But I want to come back, and I want to have a play date and a, and a pajama party. <laughs> yes. And we're going to watch bad John Hugh films. <laughs> yes. And we're going to trigger court with Blaine. Blaine. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I want to celebrate the teachers of your community. I just want to let the listeners know, because I think people think that. Sometimes when you meet somebody, then you're like, are they the same person when they're not on? Mm. Aaron, you are. I mean, you seriously, like, I feel like we're best friends and we, I mean, I just met you. And so you are through and through, you have a heart of gold. There is a big interview that's going to launch. My dad did get to have you on Bull TV. And so I think that's going to launch. That'll air in August. Air in August. But so, I mean, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We really could talk for hours and, and it just means that you have to come back and do another episode. Absolutely. And I'm going to be rocking my Peabody shirt. If yes. You saw my, my, my t-shirt. <laughs> <The> duck. <laughs> Are you going to bullseye up uh, on this one, Katie? Give us the information on like your website or anything like that where somebody can go and get more information. So we are the Freedom Writers, W-R-I-T-E-R, Freedom Writers Foundation in homage of the Freedom Writers, R-I-D-E-R, from the Civil Rights Movement. So we're the freedomwritersfoundation.org. They can visit our website. They can listen to our podcast with activists and authors called Freedom Writers Podcast. And they can go to our website and, and join any of our socials. If they, if they are on that phone or on that gadget, uh, they can either download, they can peruse our website, uh, they can donate. Um, we are really proud that when people do donate, 100% of what is donated goes directly to the cause. So if they want to support Daniel Johnson right here from Cordova in Memphis, please do so. And we will, we will have her join us. It, it will be June 27th, 28th, 29th, and the 30th. She will be joined with the original Freedom Writers, and I would be honored to to have her come back to this community and continue to pay it forward. I have another list. We did. Uh, Nicole was amazing. She did put put together another list for us. So I'm just going to rapid fire this one, uh, and, and that's that's going to be my bullseye. My bullseye is going to be the the very end of this list because we've got the list of the most inspirational teachers in pop culture, right? Mm-hmm. So we got Mr. Feeney from Boy Meets World. Feeney. I'm a little old for him. I know him better from saying elsewhere than I do Boy Meets World, but I've heard that he was a, a fantastic principal. He, he's or one that yeah. kind of like Miss G followed them. Yeah. It was like every, he went to college with them, everything. Right. So we got Mr. Feeney, Miss Honey from Matilda. Oh, uh-huh. my first crush. Yep. Uh, Professor McGonagall from Harry Potter. She was amazing. Um, Mr. Escalante from Stand and Deliver. I mean, and he was real. He was a, he's yeah. a real person, he's a real, real teacher. Person. Um, John Keating from Dead Poet Society. There he is. Thank you very much. Um, Miss Frizzle from the Magic School Bus. You asked that with a question. You don't know who Miss Frizzle is. I've never even <gasps> seen the Magic School Bus. She teaches. How old are you? I'm so <laughs> old. I'm, I'm just. I'm sorry. I'm old and I'm grumpy. Mr. Holland from Mr. Holland's Opus. Oh. Mr. Miyagi from the Karate Kid. Yeah. Come wax on, wax on, wax off. Catherine Watson from Mona Lisa Smile. Yep. Uh, Charles Xavier or Xavier, depending on how you want to pronounce it, from uh, the, the X Men or X Men. Um, Coach Herman Boone. From Remember the Titans, another real true yeah. character. Uh, Eustacia Grandin from Temple Grandin. Don't know who that is. Temple Grandin that. is a real person and she has autism. She's on the spectrum. Oh, okay. She was one of the most difficult podcast guests I've ever had, mm. um, but also one of the most impactful podcast guests I've ever had because she admitted she doesn't read social cues. So we were doing it during the pandemic, doing it on screens. If you are on the spectrum, that's one of the things you struggle with. Is, is social cues. And what was the actress that portrayed her? Claire Dane. There it is. Okay. All right. Amazing. Here's one with a bullet. This is my bullseye. 
Aaron Gruel. I made the list. You made the list. You secretly did not share that list with me. You were being very sneaky. This is the inspirational teachers in pop culture, but I want to tell you both and you obviously as well. uh, This is not just a pop culture person. We're sitting here with an inspiration and she is amazing. Mm -hmm. She is amazing. So if you ever get a chance to see her, meet her, talk to her, see her speak, whatever, you should definitely take that opportunity because she is a, uh, it's been an amazing experience for me the last few days. Just bring your Kleenexes though. Absolutely. 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 So there is my bullseye. <laughs> I, I want to join the family. Yes. We, yes. we always say in Freedom Ride World, family is what we make. So I want to be a part of the bull family. You are a part of it. <laughs> You're our bestie. Oh, I really do feel like we're BFFs. We're having way too much fun. <laughs> yes. And I want to mention Rob is not on here. He's sitting right next to us, but he has accompanied Aaron. And Rob has been Rob awesome. is the producer of all things Freedom Arts. Anything that makes us look good, it's because of Rob. Every video I showed, our podcast, um, he is, he's figured out a way to elevate it from room 203 and make it accessible to the world. Rob is your Cameron. As I say, yeah, David or has maybe Cam. And then Cameron you... is David's Rob. I don't know which it is, but it sounds yes. like y'all are, y'all are partners. And I have here. a wall of monitors. I literally cannot see him. But that's oh, okay. a terrible shame. <laughs> there he is. I got and, he's cr- and he's so humble, he's cringing. He's cringing. Beagle's going to have to cut that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, ladies and gentlemen, there's the closing bell. You've made it to the end of yet another episode of the Bullcast Podcast. If you liked what you heard and you'd like to hear more, please feel free to go to your favorite subscription service and sign up to have our podcast beam directly to your listening device every single Thursday at noon. If you'd like to find out more about Cameron, Katie, or Court, please feel free to go to our website. Drop a comment if you want to. That website is bullcastpodcast.com. If you like pictures, boy, do we have pictures. Oh, we've got all the pictures on Instagram. That Instagram handle is at bullcastpodcast, and we have words on Twitter. That handle is at Bullcast Podcast as well. Boy, do we have a Facebook page? Yes, that's right. We, we do. do have a Facebook page. That Facebook page is Bullcast the Podcast. And ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if we've mentioned it yet today, but we are a financial podcast. And the reason we are a financial podcast is because we work with a firm that is a financial advisory firm. And the name of that firm is Pickler Wealth Advisors. And if you'd like to find out more about our firm, more about us, because we've got bios on that website too, more about our amazing team and, of course, our amazing boss, David Pickler, please feel free to go to that website. That website is picklerwealthadvisors.com. That's advisors with an O. Not an E. Ladies and gentlemen, we have given you so much to chew on, so much to think about, so much to listen to. For now, I feel like I'm done. So for now, (laughs) I'm Court. I'm Katie. I'm Cam. And I'm Aaron Gruel. Thank you so much, Aaron. We are out. Bye.